Welcome to another edition of the Nosebleeds podcast. Yankees beat reporter Emmanuel Barbari, Mets beat reporter Jimmy Sullivan across the way. Fresh off the Subway Series, 4th of July, a lot to get into. A 4th of July in which the Mets are not playing, so that's interesting enough, Jimmy, and a split of the Subway Series. It seems that happens almost every it, year. It's, it's kind of my preferred outcome. I don't know about you, but... You know, it just seems fair when there's four games. It just makes sense for it to be two and two. Or last year it was three and three. I remember a couple of years ago the Yankees swept. It was just a week they played two at Yankee Stadium, two at City Field. The Yankees just swept through it. And that wasn't all that fun. It was kind of a similar year for both teams. So that was that was kind of my fear that one team was just going to run away with it, uh, especially with the Mets because. I don't know about you, but I get the vibe with, with certain Mets fans where they beat the Yankees, that's like Game 7 of the World Series, <laughs> and it's absurd. <laughs> and it just sort of, it kind of annoys me when they get so amped up for the Subway Series that the Yankees are just like, yeah, it's another series. And they're just playing in the middle of the season. Yeah, and that, that's the way I want to view it, and I understand that it isn't. Whether the Mets are 10 games over 500 or 20 games under, City Field is going to get packed in, and that's how you know it's a different type of series. But... That's why I always want to get the Subway Series over with, because it it does mean a lot more to either fan base. And in this case, more to the Mets, because their season is kind of dwindling away. And I'm not sure how you feel about it, but it does seem like some Mets, when Edwin Diaz records the final out on Tuesday night, it seems like it's a huge deal. <laughs> it certainly does. I will say this. We were both there last night. Great vibe at the ballpark. Place was basically sold out. You had the let's go Yankees, let's go Mets chats going back and forth. Uh, a lot of Yankee fans there, obviously. Uh, but really great vibe at the park. But, yeah, it might be the last uh, big game at City Field this year. So, <laughs> as unfortunate as that sounds. It certainly had a big game vibe. And that's something the Subway Series can always provide, especially when – you don't have a doubleheader format like you had last time where it's the middle of the week and game one didn't have that big of a turnout. The night games will always have people coming into play, and last night was very good. And you mentioned the ability to split these series. I, I think everyone walks away happy. The Yankees can proceed with their year. They didn't get embarrassed by a crosstown rival. The Mets didn't get embarrassed either. They, they can take solace in the fact that they split with a very good team. So... The 10th split all-time in the Subway Series, and you mentioned some sweeps that have happened to the Yankees a couple of years ago. The Mets back in 2013, I believe, swept the Yankees in what was a not-so-great year for the New York Yankees. So, it does happen sometimes where the scale kind of tips, but some competitive baseball this week. That's all you can ask for. Let's start with Tuesday night, where the Mets were able to rally against the Yankee bullpen, and Zach Wheeler, kind of an audition start where he looked very good against a strong Yankee lineup coming off that London series. I think Zach Wheeler for this team is probably the most tradable asset that they have. He's the most appealing, I think, to other teams. And I think that includes the Yankees. I mean, I don't think they're going to deal with the Yankees, but I think the Yankees are a team that could sort of look at Zach Wheeler as a guy at the back end of the rotation that could help them out. Um, I looked at this series and I said, you know, if the Mets are going to steal a game, it's got to be Tuesday. Because factoring everything with the Yankees, coming back from 3,500 miles away, across the pond, time zone change, used a lot of the bullpen over both days of the weekend with kind of everything that happened with all of the just absurd amount of runs that were scored in those two games. And you had a bullpen that was a little bit spent. Mets took advantage. Okay. Uh, and then the next night, I think things kind of reverted to what we thought they were going to revert to, which was, 
Yankee lineup did enough. Pitching was very good. I thought Domingo Herman was extremely good last night coming back from the IL. That's a very encouraging sign. Um, and I think this series, um, I, I don't usually say this. I don't, I didn't think there were a lot of surprises. I, it was about what I expected. I thought the Mets were going to win on Tuesday. I thought the Yankees were going to win on Wednesday. And that's what wound up happening. And I don't think this series really changed my perception very much of, of either team. And it kind of goes along with what the Mets have done all year. They show you ability on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, they kind of revert to the norm where one factor of their team doesn't come to play. And on Wednesday, I think, aside from the bullpen having a little bit of a blip here and there, that happened to be the offense. And that hasn't been the case all year. But it seems with the Mets, when things go wrong, one thing goes wrong. If they hit, they don't pitch. If they pitch, they don't hit. If they pitch and hit, the bullpen doesn't work out. So it it seems like one factor always doesn't work out. And you mentioned living up to expectations. I think Tuesday was the game for the Mets to win. The Mets were rested. And the Yankees will never use that London series as an excuse. But you can tell they were maybe dragging their feet a little bit. Zach Wheeler has a very good outing. you got to give him credit there. Yankees brought their A line up to play. And Zach Wheeler had a very good start. That is sure to improve his trade value with many scouts in the building on Tuesday. Mets bullpen didn't allow a run on Tuesday. So that was the big positive. They shut down the Yankee lineup late in that game. And look, the Yankees had only lost one game when leading after seven innings entering Tuesday. They were 47-1, and which is a huge luxury that the Yankees have. And they lost only their second game when leading after seven. It just happened to be against the Mets. It's going to happen. So that's just baseball for you. And Wednesday they bounced back. As you mentioned, great start from Domingo Herman. I think it was kind of par for the course they were going to lose a game in this series. They were. And I don't think, and like you said, they're not going to use London as an excuse. I don't think they're going to be fully over it until after the All-Star break just because that travel is so crazy. I mean, it's like going to the West Coast, but then you have to come all the way back. It's Nobody really has to do that in the league. And and that's a tough thing to get over. And I even thought last night they were they were lagging a little bit. You know, they had some offensive opportunities. They came away with five runs. It was more than enough. It's not a concern or anything. But they just seemed a little bit tired. They seemed a little bit jet lagged still. Um and that's something that the All Star break will really help them with. I think this weekend in Tampa is huge for this Yankees team. Um at least just to get a split, just to maintain status quo. But yeah, I mean, they looked a little tired, and, and that's going to happen when you come back from London. And I mean, the Red Sox are kind of th- going through the same thing. So I think it's just par for the course. I don't think it's anything to worry about. I was about to say, every series with Tampa is big. Maybe the one a, about a month ago was a little bigger, where the teams were neck and neck in the standings. Now the Yankees have a eight-game cushion on the loss side. If they can maintain status quo, as you mentioned, with some of this lag over, and get a split, get into the All-Star break, they're guaranteed to be in first place regardless in the All-Star uh, week. So if they're just able to maintain where they are, maintain their footing, I think it'll really, really benefit this team. And, and this is a situation where Tampa needs to look at it as an opportunity to maybe take advantage and win a series against the Yankees ahead of the All-Star break. A couple takeaways from Wednesday as well. You were mentioning how the Yankees kind of just coasted to the finish line a little bit there. Gio Urshela just put on a clinic at third base, three plays that you just don't see. Like, I'm I don't, I'm beyond words as to Gio Urshela's defensive capability at third base. Not only the ones across his body, which looked Manny Machado-esque, but the one on his backside. Oh, that was awful. After he came up with the cramps on the home run, everyone thought he was hurt, came back in the game, and then makes a 
unbelievable throw from his back. Like, like that was a terrific display from Gio. <laughs> it was, it was one of the better plays I've ever seen. I mean, I, I, you know, you, you hit it on the head, but it was kind of like, it was just Machado esque. It was unbelievable. I mean, there are, he made that backhand play in the, I think it was the first inning going into foul territory. And I, I turned to the guy sitting next to me. I said, there's maybe three to five people in the league who make that play. And Gio Urshela just happens to be one of them, especially the way he's playing this year. And, and I mean, that's just, it's just unbelievable defensively. And what gets lost in the fact that as good as he is defensively, and, and he has been great, hitting 307 with a 357 on base and a 472 slugging percentage. You know, for a guy who really didn't hit a lick in Cleveland, I think you're more than happy with that. And that gets lost because he's primarily thought of as more of a defensive player, which is true because he's, as we saw last night, he's an absolute freak at third base. But he's a good hitter, too. He's not a guy that you put in the lineup and you're going to lose a lot. And he hit a home run last night. And it's just such a deep lineup from top to bottom when you can hit a guy like they did on Tuesday night, when you can hit a guy like Labor Torres seventh. Uh that that's that's pretty ridiculous. That speaks to the depth you have in your lineup. You can pretty much just about do whatever you want with the card. And you're hitting Torres seventh without a guy like Stanton and without a guy like Voigt. So Torres can end up being your nine hitter when it's all said and done and is a guy with a nine hundred OPS and is a twenty two year old going to his second straight all star game. We'll get to that whole discussion about Torres being added to the roster and you mentioned Urshela. I think it is a little bit overshadowed because he was hitting like 350 earlier in the year. He was a great story. He came up with big hits time and time again for the Yankees. Did tail off a little bit last month, but he's still hitting very productively as a part-time player, which is really important for the Yankees because he's not going to be the everyday third baseman moving forward if everything works out, playing two, three times a week. And it seems every time they insert him into the lineup, it's at least one for four, maybe two for four, and he still flashes that power that you never saw prior to this year. And he launches a 410-foot home run to left field last night. Yankees dodge a bullet with his injury. He's been such a valuable asset. And I don't think Aaron Boone is worried anytime he inserts him into the lineup. I think it's just a luxury to have a guy who can play that good of a third base and provide his production offensively as a replacement player. It's, it's really phenomenal for the Yankees. And the at-bat quality we were discussing in the press box last night is just really great up and down that Yankee lineup. Yeah, time and, and, time and the guy like Urshela, it was funny too because another thing we were talking about is that he was really only in there because Aaron Boone wanted to get Edwin Encarnacion a day off. And he's not a guy who's going to be a primary starter. Like you said, I mean, if they play six games in a week, he might only play two. And to come off the bench cold like that and be able to produce off the bat, that's really impressive. And this is a guy who, it's tough because he played well enough to keep a job. And he's not going to have that. And so that's not fair to him. And a lot of guys could just sit there and sulk and say, oh, I'm not going to you know, either come off the bench. Not really that that's a big deal in the American League because it's just a totally different game. But play once a week or twice a week or maybe even three times a week. And a lot of guys would not be able to do that coming off the bench cold. But I've been really impressed with his ability to do that. And, and that's a heck of a replacement player. I mean, that's a guy you put in your lineup and you're not you're not stepping down at all. So you, you would take that 10 times out of 10. And my dad texted me last night during the game and said, well, that's just that's another one from Cashman's Islands of Misfit Toys, if you will. And he, he pulled that one out of him and it wound up working out great. So really not much else you can say other than a great job by the Yankees to find this guy who really hadn't done anything before this season. And it really paid off for them in spades with a guy who's hitting over 300. And you can put him in the lineup 
you know, a couple times a week, and, and he can be productive. So you have to be happy with that, I think, if you're the Yankees. And when you look across town with the Mets, they just don't have that luxury, and I think that's one of the main differentiating factors between those two organizations right now. And you drew one of those factors last night and one that has been drawn a couple times this season, and it's just amplified more and more. We see DJ LeMahieu, and more and more we don't see Jed Lowry, and this is almost Cashman's Island of fit toys because DJ LeMahieu was a perfect fit for this team, and ho-hum, just another two-hit game yesterday. A couple of doubles. This guy is so good at covering the strike zone, and he's just a great hitter. And he's having a what's turning into a career season, and this is a really good player for years now who, when he's had his great seasons, he's been a batting champion, and when he hasn't necessarily had his best seasons with the bat, he's been a gold glover. So this guy has been good in one way or another for his entire career out in Colorado. People were concerned with the splits outside of Coors Field. Clearly that hasn't been an issue. He's just having a terrific season. He's AL Player of the Month, hit 395 in the month of June, and went on a streak prior to the turn of the calendar where he was 19 for his last 30, which I don't think I've ever seen before. I, that's just someone not getting out. That's someone not knowing how to not get a hit, which I, I don't understand. Um, <laughs> but he's just been <laughs> phenomenal for the Yankees. I Another guy that has me at a loss for words, and he is so great in his ability to be versatile, too. Because the Yankees can always feel the great infield, regardless of how you put it, regardless of who's hurt, regardless of who's not playing. Because LeMahieu can play first so well, he can play third so well, and he can play second so well. You can put him at any of those positions, and he's great. And his value right now is looking at around an eight-win player when it's all said and done this year. Like, that's, come on, that's better than anything you could have expected. And when we saw LeMahieu do that last night, Mets came out, Mickey Calloway specifically came out and said before the game that um, they were not sure at what point Jed Lowry was going to start a rehab assignment. So, I mean, this is just getting ridiculous because they haven't been able to say directly, you know, when he's going to come back or what the timetable is going to look like for him. So they, they have no idea. He's not even close to starting a rehab assignment. It's just absurd. And that was a signing I was a fan of because he's he had a career year last year. He had some kind of sleep issue, it sounded like, and they fixed it last year, and he had a career year, and I thought he could parlay at least some of that to the Mets and be a solid hitter. Um, And I kind of expected a guy like LeMahieu and a guy like Lowry to have similar years just because they're kind of similar hitters. They're both really smart, but LeMahieu has really blown me away. Uh, He's he's been a top-10 hitter in baseball uh, this year. I don't think there's any question about that i mean he's been insanely valuable to the yankees and he's a guy like you said they can plug him and play him kind of anywhere um the mets kind of doing the same thing with jeff mcneil they put him in left they put him in right they put him in second they put him at third and he's been a plus defender at most of those positions lemay is kind of the same deal he's not going to hurt you defensively uh this is a guy who used to be he was once a gold glover actually so he's solid over there and then you obviously get the bat he's just consistent he just hits and hits and hits and there's really nothing you could do about it so Great, I mean, just a great signing, and that's the type of thing that's worked out. And without the injuries, you know, we weren't sure if he was going to play every day. But the way things have turned out, um, I don't want to say it's better, because that'd be a slight on Miguel Andujar, who is, you know, a a rookie of the year caliber player. But it kind of is, because now you don't have a reason to take DJ LeMay, who's bad out of the lineup, other than if you want to 
give him a day off. So it's just it's just an unbelievable thing. But if you want to look at a comparison between those two teams, you've got one guy who you know, could be top 10 in the MVP voting probably in the AL at season's end, or at least if they did it right now, and another guy in Jed Lowry who, theoretically, good player, uh, suffers a knee capsule injury in late February, and we haven't heard from him since. So, who? I mean, who knows? It's just such a such a mess that situation. And is if right you now. went back to January, Jimmy, I, I would have been fine with Jed Lowry as a guy for the Yankees. I, I love the signing for the Mets. He is a little bit on the upside in terms of age, but we're not talking about a 38, 39 year old. Jed Lowry's 35, 36, and they only gave him a couple years on this deal. He plays multiple positions, much like LeMahieu, and he's coming off a year in Oakland where he I think, 23 home runs, knocked in 99 runs. His OPS was up there as well. Larry was coming off a phenomenal year. I would have been completely fine with him. I was actually maybe a little envious of that signing that the Mets made because the Yankees needed a guy much like Jed Lowry in their lineup. But I think a few people anticipated this breakout from DJ LeMahieu. They were hoping they got the former batting champion, and that's kind of what I expected to get because uh, I expected the Yankees to get the best out of him and perhaps for him to hit very well in Yankee Stadium for his power to play up, which it has. But I expected Jed Lowry to do more. And, and the distinction between those two deals, plus the deals the Yankees made in the bullpen versus the deals the Mets made, really underscores the difference between these two teams this year and where they went wrong in the offseason. So it, it, I think the Subway Series is a perfect way of indicating that. And I think you know, as much as we love to rip the Mets... Um, the Jed Lowry thing, you can't, you couldn't have foreseen that. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, for his career has been a consistent player and he hasn't dealt with a ton of injuries really. So you can't foresee him coming here and then being, Oh, he's not, you're not going to have him until, I mean, he's not going to be back until at least August. I mean, when you think about how long he's been out and how long the rehab's going to take, no chance he comes back before August at the earliest. Uh, it's just, you couldn't have foreseen that. The problem is there are other things you could have foreseen. And I also tweeted this out. If you take all of the off-season acquisitions for the Mets, I mean, I mean, all of them. We're talking like Rajay Davis, Carlos Gomez, everything. Adds up to an F war, uh, which is Fangraph's war, of not even one. Uh, not even if you take the guys who left last year off the roster, which also brings it down too. All of those guys have combined for an F war of, I think it was 0.8. So, Jimmy, what you're telling me is the Mets offseason acquisitions as a whole aren't even giving them one win right now. That's correct. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy. It, it, is really, it is really crazy when you put it into perspective like that. And you can just run down the list, and it will demonstrate that with some of these moves. Wilson Ramos hasn't been a good defensive catcher for the Mets. He's had his flashes hitting, but hasn't been anything special. He's got an OPS of like 750. That's not anything special. Justin Wilson has barely pitched, and he was supposed to be a big guy out there in the bullpen. Jerry's Familia has been awful, and he was supposed to be your eighth inning guy. Edwin Diaz has massively underperformed. Robinson Cano has been brutal, and that was the worst part of that trade. Jed Lowry has not played. Maybe the only guy I could pick out is J.D. Davis? Yeah, that's the only one that's worked out. I think it's the only one, and as of a few weeks ago, I probably could have said Diaz and Ramos, but those have taken a turn for the South. So I think every move has been a whiff, aside from J.D. Davis. And, and you look at what happened with Wilson Ramos now. 
DeGrom has, he hasn't said it publicly, but it seems as though he would much rather have Tomas Nito as his personal catcher. Noah Syndergaard is now in the same boat. So you've got 40% of the starting rotation and two of the three guys who are probably going to be here for the next few years saying, I'd rather not have Wilson Ramos, basically. Which, if the Mets wanted to be a winning team this year, they needed Wilson Ramos back there. They needed him producing. They needed him to be catching on a daily basis. And that includes your two best starters throwing to him. And it's pretty crazy to think that these two guys want Tomas Nito back there who provides zero value offensively. Zero. And I I I was meaning to ask you about this, Jimmy. Do you have a problem with a guy like Noah Syndergaard openly saying that? Because I think that's a big slap in the face to Ramos. I think you're not getting much with Nito in terms of a bat. And I don't think Noah Syndergaard has accomplished all that much to be able to come out openly and say, this guy should be my personal catcher. Yeah, it struck me a little bit odd. Um, And he hasn't out and out said it publicly, but I think everyone can figure that out. Um, That seems odd to me. I mean, Ramos is obviously the better bat. Um, Nito, uh, Nito, as of late, has hit better. He's hit well enough to justify putting him in the lineup, but... There's plenty of questions over the long term. I mean, is this guy going to be anything more than a 220 or 230 hitter consistently? Um, And and I don't know if he has that in him. I I find that strange. And and it's not only that. You know, these guys last year, when you think about DeGrom's Cy Young season, second half of last year almost exclusively pitched to Devin Mesoraka, who was actually not a bad addition to this team. Kind of like Nito, really didn't hit. But solid defensively, called a good game, and DeGrom had a a sub-2 ERA with him behind the plate, so who's going to argue with that? But the problem is, not only are they kind of rebelling against Ramos here, but Ramos has another year of control. So at some point, you got to think about, if this guy's only going to play three out of every five days, and we've invested two years and almost $20 million in him, at some point, you got to look at trading him, because this is just untenable. I mean, it's just not going to work out. He's not good defensively. Nobody's saying he is, but I just think if you're going to put that kind of investment in him and not have the pitchers repay it, at some point you've got to look at other avenues elsewhere because he doesn't call a good game. The pitchers are not comfortable with him, aside from maybe Steven Matz, and they got they got to probably explore other avenues elsewhere. And the one guy who is comfortable with him is now in the bullpen, so I don't think that's a great reflection. It, it, you need a guy like that to be able to catch your big guns. If you need a productive offensive catcher to be part of your everyday fold – he needs to be able to at least be somewhat sturdy defensively. It, it can't be a situation where they're literally discarding him from the lineup because of his defensive struggles. So you're right. I think he needs to be on the block for the Mets if they're going to go into sell mode at the deadline. And I think he's a guy you could get some value for. If a team is in need of a starting catcher, I think there is value in a guy like Wilson Ramos. And the Mets should consider parting ways, almost like the Yankees did with Brian McCann. It's not like the Mets have a guy like Gary Sanchez coming up to replace him, but it, 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 once you have a guy that you can't use every day behind the plate, who's used to being an everyday catcher, I think it's better to get him everyday reps elsewhere, and I think there is value in And, and I think even if he's not a catcher, um, I think somebody could take him, especially a contender, maybe in the American League, I think somebody could take him as a DH, because you, that, that way you nullify the lack of of defensive value that he provides because he provides none um, because he's just he, he's just not good out there so you know maybe a team like 
I mean, I'm thinking out loud here, but maybe a team like Houston maybe takes a look at that and says, hey, that's a guy we can add to the lineup. Maybe not because of you know the emergence of a guy like Jordan Alvarez, but maybe a contender looks at him and says, you know what? Defense be damned. Need this guy's bat in the lineup. The problem is, the, the way you look at it this season, he's really, his hitting has not justified you know, playing him every day because of how bad he is defensively. I mean, this is a guy, you look at this year, 275 average, that's pretty good, but only a 414 slugging percentage, an OPS just north of 750. That's average. I mean, teams are not going to take that. His power is way down. Um, He's on the wrong side of 30. And this is a guy who's also been injury prone in the past. So there's a long laundry list of issues with Wilson Ramos. And this was another signing I liked in the offseason, to be totally fair with you. I thought... They, they had every potential to overpay for Grandal, and I thought that if they traded for Real Muto, they would have had to given up a King's ransom. But it just has not worked out. And you look at their catching moves over the offseason, they signed Wilson Ramos, they tendered Travis Darno, which I think was a tragic mistake. And Travis Darno is on the raise now, and he's doing pretty well, actually. Um, the, the thought being that maybe he came back too quickly. And this has become a real issue. For the Mets. I mean, this was thought to be an area of strength that it's been a weakness the last few years. You go out, you get Wilson Ramos, and you think, hey, we fixed the problem. Well, they really didn't. And now, in addition to that, you have two out of your five starting pitchers saying, you know what, we'd rather pitch to the other guy when the other guy really doesn't give you any value at the plate. So it's becoming a very big issue for the Mets right now, and it's something that they should consider divorcing themselves from. Recurring catching issue for the Mets when... That's been a huge issue. Even when the Mets were good a couple of years ago, it was still an issue. Uh, their production behind the plate and their ability to have an everyday guy back there. And I really thought they fixed it. I like Wilson Ramos. Uh, I've liked his track record throughout his career. I love the fact that the Mets gave him a deal on the open market instead of overpaying for a guy like Real Muto, who the Marlins, let's be frank here, Real Muto's a good player. He's a premier catcher in a league where there aren't many, but he's not good enough to warrant what the Marlins were asking for. He, he, he's not that good. He's not, he shouldn't demand, like, and I'm maybe a little biased here, he shouldn't be demanding, like, Gary Sanchez-type value, uh, when in reality, I think he had a great year last year. I think catching studs are few and far between, but I don't think the Mets should have overpaid for him in the slightest, and I love that they did that instead of trading for a guy like Edwin Diaz or Robinson Cano, where you could have gotten those guys on the open market, a second baseman or a closer. So I love the fact that the Mets paid for Ramos, and another move you couldn't have foreseen just hasn't paid off. And I think that's been a big story with the Mets. And, and I mean, you look at that trade in the offseason, too. I mean, the Mets give up, and this is this is just the great irony of this trade. So they give up, they get Cano and Diaz back. They Two of the guys they give up, Jared Kalenic and Justin Dunn, are both going to be in the Futures game. Third guy they give up is Anthony Swarzak, who gets traded to the Braves, and he's been fantastic as their eighth inning guy. Fourth guy they give up is Jay Bruce, who got traded to the Phillies. He's got he's I think he's closing in on twenty five home runs this year. I mean, granted, very up and down, but every part of this trade has somehow come back to bite the Mets. And I know you couldn't have foreseen that, but it's still pretty funny when you think about it. And the irony of that that. Every piece in this trade, even the minor ones like Bruce and Swarzak, is coming back to bite the Mets right now. I mean, it's just impossibly bad luck. And at some point, you got to look at it and say, you know, with all of the front office regimes and managers and people who have come through here, at some point, you just got to say, 
it's the Mets. And you have to kind of take everything, even the moves that you think you like, which for the most part, I actually kind of like their offseason when they did it. You still got to look at it with a grain of salt and say, well, it's the Mets and there's still every chance this goes wrong. And that sounds terrible to say, but with the way this franchise has operated over the past probably 30 years, I think it's something you have to say because the way that things have gone, especially this year, has sort of been a a myriad collection of just all these things that have gone wrong, kind of like the way the Mets have been run for the past two or three decades. So it's really, it's just, it's wild to see everything just fall apart on the Mets in spectacular fashion. But you kind of had to factor it in as a possibility, as crazy as it's It's unreal. And when you put it that way, where Kalenic and Dunn are having great years in the minors and they're going to be in the Futures game, and literally the two major league assets the Mets gave up have come back to bite them in one way or another in their own division. Bruce, in fact, did a walk-off against the Mets. This is... It's it's nutty, it, it, this kind of perspective on the deal. And, of course, of course, Cano and Diaz have provided nothing in terms of advancing this team's interests in 2019. So, I mean, there's nothing else you can say. You mentioned it's the Mets. Uh, we have one more thing to get to uh, before we wrap up, and that is on the other side of town uh, with the Yankees. And we just saw them for the last two days, had a couple of very productive games, even in lieu of not being initially an all-star. And that's Glaber Torres, a 22-year-old with a massive future. And now he's a two-time All-Star because for some reason, for some reason, Brandon Lau was named to the All-Star game instead of Glaber Torres in the first place as a replacement. And his numbers are worse in every single regard, in, 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 with the exception of maybe one RBI, which we know we don't need to value that stat all that much. So... Glaber Torres was completely snubbed the first time, the second time as well. I'm happy that Xander Bogarts got in the game before Glaber Torres did because he deserved it as well. There are plenty of deserving shortstops, and I'm sure uh, the the position confusion with Torres kind of hurt him this year where he was a shortstop for half of the first half and a second baseman for the other half of the first half. But he deserves to be an all-star. He's 22 last year as a rookie, a 21-year-old rookie. Ended with an 840 OPS, had a worse season, still a very good year for his age and a, and a remarkable year any way you put it, but he had a worse year than he was having this year. He got remarkably better, and you're not going to put him in the All-Star game. I think he was very deserving. Aaron Boone wasn't happy about it. He said to kick rocks, actually, uh, to, to the decision makers. So uh, it's the right move. I, I'm happy for the kid, and... I just don't understand why they passed him up in the first place. I don't know why I had to take a Brandon Lau injury to get him in Yeah, the that, that was interesting to me. And, I mean, you look at the numbers. Gleyber Torres, in basically everything important, is a shade better than Brandon Lau. Not a lot better. And it's not ridiculous to think Brandon Lau could be an all-star. But Torres is clearly better. And, actually, after last night, Torres has a one RBI edge on, on Brandon Lau. So, there you go. But um, that's not a stat I, I really think is that important anymore. But, yeah, I mean, the positional confusion probably hurt him. Uh, the thing that I find amazing, and I think you retweeted this stat this morning, so I don't, I don't want to take credit for it, but I am going to say it. Um, three Yankees have made the All-Star team before, have played in two All-Star games before the age of 23. DiMaggio, Mantle, and Gleyber Torres. Now, that's pretty good. That is very good company to be in, and, and just uh, remarkably impressed with what Glaber Torres has done. Last year as a 21-year-old um, up there for Rookie of the Year, and this year 
coming back as a 22 year old and, and kind of picking up where he left off. And in some, in a lot of ways, I think having a better year, uh, he's been, he's been incredible. Uh, there's not a lot more you could say about him. You know, this is the guy they got back from the Cubs for a role. This Chapman kind of a top prospect. Um, you know, it, it was a fascinating deal. I think the type of deal that both teams would probably do again in a heartbeat and Glaber Torres has really come through on it. And a lot of these young guys come up and, and the way we treat prospects now, we really build them up to be the next great thing. And then usually they disappoint us. Glaber Torres is one of the handful of examples. He just has not disappointed us. He's been excellent. And that's really just about all you can say. No sophomore slump for Torres. He's actually improved defensively, offensively. He's added even more power to his game. And it's looking like he's probably going to hit around 35 home runs this year, which is crazy. Well, when, when Torres was considered a good prospect, he was probably going to hit north of 300 in the major leagues, maybe 15 home runs if you were lucky. The power kind of came around when he burst upon the scene in the big leagues last year. And now he's looking at being a 35 home run hitter with plus defense up the middle as a 22-year-old with two all-star appearances. And sometimes you force guys into that equation where they're being compared with some of the Yankee greats. And some of those lists are kind of, you got to take them with a grain of salt. But I do think that's a list you can take note of because that's only three players. Torres is one of them. And it's about achieving heights at a young age. And I think it just amplifies the fact that Torres is doing all this at 22. Where some people may not even be in the big leagues. And he came sooner than most. And he may have been here a year earlier had he not had the Tommy John surgery on his head first slide in a home plate when he was in AAA and he was knocking on the door a year prior. He might have been here in 2017. So that's crazy to think. He could be in maybe three all-star games, dare I say, uh, by this age. So there's not enough you can say. And I think you're going to end up talking about this guy with the likes of Acuna and Soto and Vlad Guerrero Jr. and all these great young players that are bursting upon the scene in this league for years to come. I think he'll end up being a top 15 player in baseball. And that's something the Yankees can really take pride in. The thing that impresses me the most about these guys, Torres, Judge, Sanchez, now Herman a little bit as well, you know, they're not doing this, and no offense to cities like this, they're not doing it in Kansas City or Seattle or San Diego. They're doing this in New York for the premier franchise, at least in baseball, and probably one of the handful of premier franchises in sports, maybe the premier franchise in sports. And they come up... And it's, it's not too big for them. It's not too much for them to handle. Um, and it's really impressed me how they've been able to come up, block out all that noise, and be able to perform as well as they have with some of the best players in the game. I mean, it's just unbelievable from day one, except for maybe Judge when he came up in 2016 and struggled. Basically, all these guys from day one have been super productive. It's just unbelievable the success rate the Yankees have had with these prospects. They hit on almost everyone. And everyone that's been regarded as big for them if they haven't been traded, and it seems whenever they trade them, they don't work out for the other franchise for one reason, one reason or another. The latest case being Justice Sheffield being demoted to double-A with the Mariners in the James Paxton deal. But when they come up for the Yankees, the Yankees identify who's going to work out. And Torres is the latest case of a guy who they projected to be a stud, and he's a stud in every sense of the word. Judge Sanchez, Severino, although he's hurt right now, has really panned out when you think about it. Domingo Herman is panning out. Miguel Andujar panned out, although he's hurt this year. It's crazy that everyone just comes up and has that massive impact. And then the guys they locate in other organizations, Didi Gregorius, Luke Voigt, Aaron Hicks, undervalued throughout baseball, 
valued by the Yankees, bring him in here, and they thrive. Gio Urshela, the latest on that list. So good time to be rooting for the Yankees and just be following the organization and its depth. Jimmy, before we go, 4th of July, Mets not playing. What are you doing today? With a lack of Fourth of July baseball, I don't know why it's not on the schedule. I personally, don't. I was all ready to watch the Mets tonight, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> I'm looking at the schedule. I'm like, <laughs> the baseball on the fourth. Last year, you know, this is weird. Back to back years. So last year they were in Canada for the fourth. Um, don't know how that happens, but okay. And then this year they're just not playing. Uh, really odd turn of events, but uh, I think I'll figure out a way to cope. I'll figure out a way to figure something out. I'll watch other baseball. You know, it's. It's okay. It's not like a huge deal, but it's really weird. It's just 4th of July is synonymous with barbecues and and hot dogs and hamburgers and baseball. I mean, that's what the 4th of July is. And to not have everybody playing, that's really weird to me. And I just don't understand that. But I don't run baseball, clearly. I know it's hard with X number of teams in the league and X number of games. And 162 game schedules for each team. I I know it's hard. I don't think you, there's a way you can implant every team on the Fourth of July. I don't think it's going to massively affect the schedule. So for me, it's just weird. Like, come on, play a game. Play play a one o'clock, even noon game. Get out of there. Go have a barbecue with the team. Like, just figure out a way to play a game because we want something on that TV while we're in the backyard. And having a good time with the barbecue on Fourth of July. Oh, I was watching. I was watching the Nationals at eleven a.m. this morning. I mean, there's no reason why teams can't do that. <laughs> I was talking about it last night with someone. You could even do a doubleheader if you wanted. If you wanted to schedule a doubleheader today to almost make it a cool full day of baseball, start it at noon and just play a single admission doubleheader baseball until like six o'clock, and then you have your nighttime barbecue. Like, come on, what's better? So, just a weird note. And hopefully they figure that out for next year and figure <laughs> just, I don't know. It, some things you can't explain. And this obviously isn't the Mets fault because there's a major league baseball thing. So as much finally something we can't blame. Yes. On the Mets. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we can't pick on the Mets for. So uh, that's going to do it. We'll be back uh, next week and a lot more to get into as we start pushing towards the trade deadline, which should become a major topic of discussion for the Yankees. Who should they go after? Yankees will obviously be a major contender this year. Who should the Mets maybe sell? Will Brody sell? Those are future topics on Nosebleeds. Jimmy, thanks for doing this. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Happy 4th. God bless America. Jimmy Sullivan. I'm Emmanuel Barbari. Nosebleeds. WFUBsports.org.